unseen realities. A much, much simpler topic than the one we looked at this morning, obviously. Last time, in September, we thought about heaven now. We started by saying we'd be relying in this series on what the Bible says about heaven. That's our only reliable source of information. And then we saw last time how the word heaven is used in the Bible. Often it's used in the sense of the visible created realm above the earth, so the sky basically. When it's used that way, it tends to be mentioned alongside the earth. So we get the phrase often in the Bible, heaven and earth. That's a way of referring to the whole of creation. But we saw last time the word heaven is also used in the Bible to refer to the invisible dwelling place of God. And that's the sense we're focusing on in this series. Heaven as a dimension of reality that is normally hidden from us. But we did look several, uh, at several places last time where scripture does give us a glimpse into that other dimension. Then we saw too that Jesus is presented in the Bible as the only way to heaven. In the person of Jesus Christ, heaven came to earth. The invisible realm invaded this visible realm. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven, having opened up a way for us to follow through faith in him. But we ended last time by noticing that heaven as it is now is only a temporary destination for us. Those believers in Christ who have gone ahead of us are truly in God's presence, but they are also looking forward to something greater. Heaven now is not the same as heaven to come. And that's what we're going to think about today. Let's pray before we begin to do that. Shall we realize that our greatest delight and pleasure is found in you? And one of the ways we find that delight is by looking ahead to what you have in store for us. So as we try to do that this afternoon, I pray that this will not be a subject that we're afraid of, but a subject that we're eager to think about. And even if we might disagree on certain points, I pray that this will be something we're able to find joy in. And so we pray that your spirit will help us as we try to look at your word and accurately understand what it teaches us about the future. Amen. It does say part one on the screen. We're going to look at this over two sessions. Today we're going to think about the big picture of what's ahead. Then next time we'll try to focus in on some of the smaller details, maybe some of the smaller questions we might have. So we'll look at questions like, what will heaven actually be like for us? Can we say anything at all about that? If so, how much can we say about it? What will we do? Will our pets be there? Everybody wants to know that. In Megan's case, she's hoping our cat won't be there. It's a very limited perspective on what God can do. Even our cat, maybe, could be changed. Next time we'll deal with those kind of detailed questions. Some of them we can't answer, and we'll try to admit that, but some of them we can answer. 
But today we're going to look at the big fundamental points the Bible makes about our future. So as far as the Bible is concerned, what are we waiting for? Let me mention four things that are ahead of us according to the Bible. I mentioned the first three of them very, very briefly, just to put a context to this. And then we'll spend the rest of our time just on the last of those four things. Here are the first three the Bible sets out for us. We're waiting for the bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth. We're waiting for the resurrection of all the dead throughout history, both believers and unbelievers. And we're waiting for the final judgment, after which the Bible says some will depart to eternal punishment and some to eternal life. That final judgment takes place on the basis of what each one of us did with Jesus, how we responded to him. Those are monumental things. We could spend a whole session looking at those things. But what we're going to do today is think about what happens for God's people after the final judgment. When we say those who are in Christ will go to eternal life, what do we mean? We mean heaven on earth. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. If you're using one of the Green Church Bibles, that's page 1249. And the larger print Bible is 1937. Revelation 21. The end of chapter 20 of Revelation is John's description of the final judgment. And then we're going to read chapter 21, verses 1 to the beginning of verse 5. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The key thing to notice in those verses is simply that God does not remove his people to some other place. He comes to be with his people on earth. One writer says, Redemption completed is not the removal of humans from earth, to a heavenly existence, but rather the bringing of all that is in heaven, including God himself, to earth. So what's described for us there in Revelation 21 is the ultimate answer to the Lord's Prayer. Remember how the Lord's Prayer starts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, as you and I pray those words, we see evidence all around us of God's will being defied and rejected on earth. But in the future, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, it's not going to be forgotten about. It's not going to be abandoned. It's going to be fully and perfectly answered. When heaven comes to earth and God sets up his eternal reign on earth. In his letter to the Ephesians, here's how the Apostle Paul sums up God's plan for the future. It's to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. One commentator says about that verse, Just as God and mankind are reconciled in Christ, so too the dwellings of God and mankind, heaven and earth, will be reconciled in Christ. Just as the wall that separates God and mankind is torn down in Jesus, so too the wall that separates heaven and earth will be forever demolished. There will be one universe with all things in heaven and earth together under one head, Jesus Christ. There's an old pop song called Heaven is a Place on Earth. And that song says, we'll make heaven a place on earth. That overestimates what human beings can achieve. It's doomed to be disappointed because human beings cannot create heaven on earth. But the Bible says heaven on earth is going to happen. It was God's ambition long before it was a human ambition. And God will accomplish his ambition. And when we realize this, the Old Testament begins to make a whole lot more sense to us. Because this explains one very distinctive feature of the Old Testament. It's that when the Old Testament speaks about the inheritance of God's people, it speaks about it in very earthy terms. In fact, God himself in the Old Testament speaks in very earthy terms. He says to the very first man and woman, fill the earth. He says to Abraham, I will give you land. The same Hebrew word is used in both places. And as we read on in the Old Testament, we find that Old Testament hope is consistently tied to the earth. For example, we look at Psalm 37, which promises... Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The meek will inherit the land. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Proverbs says, The upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the unfaithful will be torn from it. When the Old Testament prophets look into the distant future, they long for the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. We could go on all night with those earth-bind hopes of the Old Testament writers. A writer called Randy Alcorn sums that up for us. He says, The prophets were never concerned about some far-off realm of disembodied spirits. They were concerned about the land, the inheritance, the city of Jerusalem, and the earth they walked on. Eretz, that's the Hebrew word that's translated either earth or land in our Bibles. Eretz is the fourth most frequently used noun in the Old Testament appearing more than 2,500 times. The frequency of the word's use reflects its centrality. The Old Testament is filled with the idea of place, land, earth. And so if you and I come to the Bible thinking that God's plan for our eternal future is a non-physical place, out in the clouds somewhere, then we're going to read all of that in the Old Testament and we're going to find ourselves thinking they didn't really know too much, those Old Testament guys. Fancy thinking God's going to give us the earth. Fancy thinking he's going to fill the earth with his presence. But if we think that way, it's us who are off track. Because when we turn to the New Testament and we begin listening to Jesus... When we get to his Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus agrees with the Old Testament guys. From the beginning, God's plan has centered on the earth. And this present sinful state of the earth has not led God to abandon his plan. He will establish heaven on earth. He will dwell with his people here, not somewhere else. So what will God do to accomplish heaven on earth? What will be involved in achieving that plan? Well, Jesus described it in one phrase. The renewal of all things. The Apostle Peter described it as God restoring all things. And we'll think about two aspects of that. First, our bodies, and then second, the earth. The New Testament promises us resurrected, renewed, physical bodies. And here are some of the New Testament statements about this. In Philippians, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there notice again this is about heaven coming to earth we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body that's a reference to jesus body after his resurrection Or over in Romans, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
in 1 Corinthians. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, in other words, the body that dies and gets laid in the ground, is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So there will be continuity, just as there is between the seed and what grows from the seed. It will be your body that's raised. But there will also be change. Very significant change. It will be your body made glorious. Transformed. It will be your body as you never knew it could be. And that double aspect of continuity and change also applies to the renewal of the earth. We're going to look at two slightly longer passages about this. So if you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. In the Green Bibles, that's page 1135, and in the larger print, 1755. Romans 8, and we'll read from verse 18 to 23. Just before this, Paul has been talking about us being co-heirs with Christ, because we're God's children. He speaks about the glory we're going to share in, and now he describes that. He says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. Notice how Paul compares our longing for renewed bodies with the rest of creation's longing for its renewal. Just like our renewed bodies, it will be this creation that is liberated from its bondage to decay. It will be this creation that is brought into freedom and glory. There will be continuity, but there will also be change. It will be creation without sin and death and suffering and corruption. Randy Alcorn points out, we often say, this world is not my home. But if we are honest, however, we might add, but part of me sure wishes it was. What we really want is to live forever in a world with all the beauty and none of the ugliness. A world without sin, death, the curse, and all the personal and relational problems 
and disappointments they created. That's what we long for. And that is what God has promised us. God will not scrap his original creation and start over. Instead, he will take his fallen, corrupted children and restore, refresh, and renew us to our original design. God's honor consists precisely in the fact that he redeems and renews the same humanity and the same world that have been corrupted and polluted by sin. That understanding helps us get to grips with another passage in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. In the green Bibles, it's page 1223, and in the large print, 1896. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 to 13. And as we read this, you'll notice the first part isn't about the future at all. It points to the past. But it does that to help us understand what's coming in the future. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So Peter goes first to the judgment that came on this earth in Noah's day. That's what he's referring to in verse 6. He says the earth was destroyed by the worldwide flood. 
Now, clearly, he does not mean the earth was entirely obliterated. It was changed very significantly from what it was before the flood, but it was still the same earth before and after the flood. There was continuity. And that's what Peter points to to help us understand what he says next about what's ahead for the earth. He says, in the future, God's judgment will come again, but not as a devastating flood, this time as a devastating fire. And certainly that destruction will be much more thorough than the destruction caused by the flood. This future destruction will permanently eliminate sin. It will be an utter exposure to God's judgment. He says everything will be laid bare in the face of God's judgment, opened up to his judgment. So this isn't going to be a superficial destruction, but it will be of the same kind as the destruction brought about by the flood. It will ultimately be a purifying, renewing event, not an utterly obliterating event. It will be a thorough and perfect cleansing of this earth. And that's why in the book of Acts, we find the same Peter who wrote this passage preaching about these same events and describing them as God restoring everything. So what Peter says here will be destroyed will also be restored after that destruction couldn't be restored if it had been completely obliterated. So if we put all that together, Peter's use of the word restore, plus his comparison with the flood, plus Paul's teaching that we saw in Romans about creation being liberated and glorified, when we put all that together, we know what is being described here is not the annihilation of this creation, but its renewal. It will be cleansed to the very core to be raised without corruption, just as our own bodies will be. The cleansing fire of God's judgment will purify and renew his creation. And I hope that's good news for us. To realize this world will be our eternal home. But not in its present state, not in the broken condition that we see now. Our eternal home will be this earth in its perfected condition. When heaven has finally come to earth. When the ugliness we see and experience has been entirely removed. And when the beauty we see and we love now. When that has given way to even richer and more wonderful beauty. The new creation will not be creation out of nothing. It will be a remolding and restoring of this creation. One writer says, Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, forever establishing our connection to the earth. Just as we are made from the earth, so too we are made for the earth. We long for a return to paradise, a perfect world without the corruption of sin, where God walks with us and talks with us in the cool of the day. 
Because we are human beings, we desire something tangible and physical, something that will not fade away. And that is exactly what God promises us. A home that will not be destroyed, a kingdom that will not fade, a city with unshakable foundations and incorruptible inheritance. That last phrase comes from 1 Peter. 1 Peter says that our living hope as Christians is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That inheritance is literally heaven on earth. It's God's people with God in renewed bodies on a renewed earth. Next time we'll think about the details of that picture. What will life be like? What will we do? We'll see if we can answer some of those questions. But for the last part of our time today, let's think about what difference this makes today. If this is what we're waiting for, how do these things already begin to transform our lives here and now? So having asked, what are we waiting for? Now we can go on to ask, what difference does it make? There are several points we could mention about this. And so next time we'll again close by thinking about this same question. But today we'll consider just one difference this makes today. Hope. Jerome Gripman is a professor at Harvard Medical School. As far as I know, he's not a Christian. But he says that having hope is at least as important for our well-being as any medicine or medical procedure that we'll ever undergo. He says, Hope, I have come to believe, is as vital to our lives as the very oxygen that we breathe. It's hope that keeps you and I going. So many people have to try to manufacture hope for themselves. And at best, their hope then is pretty fluffy. Somehow things are going to work out okay for them. But as God's people, we have a genuine concrete hope. One writer explains the way hope is used in the Bible. Hope is something greater than even confident expectation. It is something more closely related to the character of God. Hope, biblical hope, is not a wish tinged with doubt. Not merely an expectation of something yet to come. It is grounded in nothing so uncertain as circumstances, still less in our feelings, but in the absolute reliability of God's character. As Christians, our future hope is grounded in the absolute reliability of our God's character. He will do what he has told us he'll do. Our hope has a reliable foundation and it has a definite form. It's not clouded in deep mystery. We live with the sure and certain hope of heaven on earth. In 1952, a lady called Florence Chadwick attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the shore of California. That's a distance of 26 miles and it had never been done before. She got in the water, she swam for 15 hours, and at that point, a very thick fog came down over the top of the water. 
She could barely see the boat that was traveling alongside her. But she carried on for another hour, and then she gave up. Only to discover, a few minutes later, that she'd given up half a mile from the shore. And afterwards she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she got back in the water and she tried it all over again. And again, that thick fog came down over the top of the water. But this time, she swam with an image of the shore in her mind. And she made it. I mention that because our situation is a bit like that. The Christian life is tough. It's taxing. But if you and I can see the shore, we can make it. If we live with our eyes and our minds on what God has in store for us, we can keep going through fog and through storms until we reach home. And that is why it is not escapism for you and me to spend time thinking about heaven to come. It is incredibly practical. It's as practical as a long-distance swimmer thinking about the shore. It keeps us going here and now. David Calhoun points us to the Apostle Paul and he shows how this same thing worked in the Apostle Paul's life. In the opening chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul describes the trials and successes of his life as ambassador of Christ. Startlingly, Paul then calls his and our suffering light and momentary. How can he possibly describe great trouble this way? He does it by comparing it with something else. 50 pounds seems so heavy until compared with a ton. A year, 10 years, 50 years is a long time until compared with eternity. Troubles are sure to come, but so will the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. John Calvin writes that heaven makes light what before seemed to be heavy, and brief and momentary what seemed to last forever. Another writer says, anticipating heaven does not eliminate pain, but it does lessen it and put it in perspective. Or again, we must live in hope. If we focus exclusively on the now, we will fail to live in it. But if our eyes are on what God will do in the not yet, that will enable us to live in the now and to endure until the not yet. You can't live now unless your hope is on the not yet. The now is so overwhelming that we can't survive without the hope of the not yet. So Paul teaches us to suffer and endure to the glory of God by pointing us to the future. I've quoted from Randy Alcorn several times already, and he contrasts our situation, what we've just been talking about, 
with the very different situation of unbelievers. People without Christ can only look back to when they were at their best, never to regain it. Memories are all they have, and even those memories fade. But elderly or bedridden Christians don't look back to the peak of their prowess. They look forward to it. When we Christians sit in wheelchairs or lie in beds or feel our bodies shutting down, let's remind ourselves, I haven't passed my peak. I haven't yet come close to it. The strongest and healthiest I've ever felt is a faint suggestion of what I'll be in my resurrected body on the new earth. Recently, as we've been looking at 1 Peter, we've heard about the likelihood of encountering all kinds of trials. Not just physical aging and illness, but also what Peter calls unjust suffering because of our commitment to Christ. But Peter also promises us heaven on earth will be the place of ultimate and final vindication for us when we suffer injustice. He says the one who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. In heaven on earth we will receive praise, glory and honor. So the Bible's teaching about our future is not meant to be a kind of special interest topic. It's not meant just for those Christians who have time on their hands to spare thinking about non-essential things. No, the Bible puts a major focus on our future. Right through from the Old Testament to the very end of the New Testament. The future is at the core of what the Bible wants us to know. And the reason is we need this to live now as Christians. The hope of heaven to come is as vital to our lives as the very oxygen that we breathe. If we don't keep this hope fresh in our minds and hearts, we'll just suffocate. We'll become so overwhelmed by our present difficulties that we'll give up. We've seen how that's true in the difficulties of sickness and aging. And someone who knows all about unjust suffering, Ajit Fernando, he shows how this relates to persecution as well. The humiliation of persecution is most painful because it makes the persecuted look like failures and fools and their faith look powerless. But the Bible is keen to remind the faithful that taking on hardship for Christ is a wise investment, the benefits of which are of eternal duration. We'll give scripture the very final word on this. At the end of a long chapter dealing with our future hope, the Apostle Paul closes by encouraging us with these words. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because of what's ahead of us. 
because of our future hope. Heaven on earth, brought about by the renewal of all things, both our bodies and the earth.